Good morning, Minecrafters, and welcome to episode 20, Hardwired for Happiness. So, we've been having a lot of discussions on mindfulness and staying in, in the moment and how important it is because uh, that's all we really have, right? And, and we've talked about Eckhart Tolle and power of now because in this moment is truly the power. In this moment is when we truly live. And this is what it's all about, right? And just last week, we talked about the importance of cultivating gratitude and making this a, a practice because what we practice, we inevitably, inevitably get better at, right? And how when we work at cultivating gratitude, again, think of a farm with all the rich soil and, and you know, the plants growing big and beautiful and cultivating gratitude is just so important for our own happiness and quality of well-being. And now... Um, we've got to kind of do both of those things, and then this is an add-not-subtract situation. Learning how to actively, actively take a good, positive experience and bring it into the living room, incorporate it into our lives, internalize it, is enormously, enormously important. And there are certainly many people out there who have a difficult time even just accepting a compliment. And they might not say anything back, but they feel like they're going to crack down the middle if somebody says something genuinely, authentically good about something they said or did or their character or anything like that. And that's just sort of like an outward expression of what's going on on the inside. So this episode is going to be about, you know, rewiring ourselves to to incorporate the good. It's so, so important to actually sit with how, not just a compliment, but a bigger experience, to take that positive in because by doing so, neurologically speaking, the brain gets used to it, just like the other things we've talked about, and actually looks for more. When it's unfamiliar, the brain's like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to go down that path, right? When it becomes more familiar, more, more habitual, more good will come into our lives. So this episode is about how to do that. It's about how to rewire ourselves to uh, accept the good in our lives. And then to, you know, say, bring it on. Let's have some more. So Rick Hansen has a really good book called Hardwiring Happiness, the New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence. And let me tell you, my bookshelves are loaded, obviously, with books on happiness and positive psychology and everything that's fed into my my new course, Minecraft. And um, let's start out with what he says about, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, just, just sort of defining positivity and negativity, even though we all think we know, right? It's good to be on the same page. So Rick says that by positive and good, he means what leads to happiness and benefit for oneself and others. And negative and bad mean what leads to suffering and harm. Just so we're on the the same page here. So Rick starts out with um, being with our minds. So the mindfulness part we've been talking about is kind of the central because this is the foundation. And again, this episode is about turning that into action because the mindfulness is certainly important. I'm a big fan. I just actually, you know, came in from the deck being mindful out there with the birds and all the little sounds of summer. And it's just absolutely amazing way to start my day and a foundation or even a springboard to then leap into making some actual changes because um, happiness is a choice and it takes effort just like anything else in life. So um, this is where we're going to start. So when Rick talks about, he starts out with being with your mind, right? And he says, this is about letting your mind be. Simply observing your experience 
gives you relief and perspective, like stepping out of a movie screen and watching from 10 row, tw- sorry, 20 rows back. Letting the stream of consciousness run on its own helps you stop chasing what's pleasant and struggling with what's unpleasant. You can explore your experience with interest and hopefully kindness towards yourself and perhaps connect with softer, more vulnerable, and possibly younger layers in your mind. In the light of an accepting, non-reactive awareness, your negative thoughts and feelings can sometimes melt away like morning mists on a sunny day. And I'm sure some of you out there must be saying, morning mists on a sunny day. Sure, how poetic. You don't know what it's like to be in my head for a day, live in my head for a day and see if you're seeing any morning mist. Well, that's kind of what we're going to talk about, because when it comes right down to it, again, happiness is a choice, I'm sure. And as mentioned in previous episodes, I'm, I mean, I don't like to say every, I'm not into these polarized words. I just don't know if I've ever had a semester where I didn't have, you know, at least a few students say, well, hey, wait, I'm diagnosed with anxiety. I'm diagnosed with depression. I'm diagnosed with bipolar depression. I'm diagnosed with ADHD or autism. And autism sometimes has comorbids with anxiety, depression, and ADHD certainly does. So, and okay, yes, truth. And then if you remember, I, I, I'm not going to go through it. So we don't have a lot of, you know, overlap here. You can go back through to the episode where I explained about the, uh, the track meet. Well, actually it wasn't me explaining. It was the wonderful man giving that um, graduation speech at my youngest brother-in-law's graduation, who was amazing with the track meet. So it's, you know, wearing that extra weight, as we'll say, is a drag. I mean, that's just a drag, you know, just like being born with type one diabetes or being born with any other kind of something, you know, that's the cards we're dealt do play into it. And at the same point, you know, it still is a choice and with the awareness part is first, right? That's like when we say about the 12 step programs when, when I've heard people in recovery say, you know, you know, you're ready when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. I mean, I love that. Right. We kind of get sick of listening to ourselves. And with the negative Nellies out there, the aha moment can come when other people get sick of listening to you because no one wants. I shouldn't say no one. Most people don't want to be brought down by a lead weight. And what I say to people is mentioned occasionally family members in a in a in a in, a, in jest because they, they know what I'm into. I say, hey, you know, I don't want to you like secondhand smoke because it might be just my husband in a mood. He's actually very positive. You might be in a mood and I'll say, hey, secondhand smoke. And it's one thing it doesn't smoke, right? It's just an analogy. He says, uh, you know, I say, if you want to, you know, if you want to breathe in all that, you go right ahead, but stay away from me. I'm not breathing in your negativity. No, thank you. You are like walking air pollution at this moment. And with that example, if any of my listeners are smokers out there, please know that I'm not judging you. There are reasons for all of us. There are reasons why we do things. And, you know, it might be where we are for the moment and maybe hopefully not where we are later because most, most smokers are trying to manage anxiety on some level. And again, we all do what we do for a reason. And uh, this may be where we are right now, but stay with it. And maybe some of these, um, some of these ways of trying to bring down that, that like, or trying to bring that down will hopefully change for you. So next, Rick talks about working with your mind. I, I just already like the idea of work. I like the word work because grit is another part of positive psychology or mind crafting, which is what we're talking about. Good old fashioned, get in it, get your hands dirty, let your lower back hurt a little bit and then come in for a big whopping dinner. Okay. Grit is huge. And mind grit isn't different. 
it's still getting your hands dirty, metaphorically speaking, by by diving right in, doing some hard, hard labor with um, getting our mind into a to be in a better place. And so he says, working with the mind, he says, but just being with your mind is not enough. You also need to work with it, making wise efforts, put, pulling weeds and growing flowers, merely witnessing stress, worries, irritability, or a blue mood will not necessarily uproot any of these. As we'll see in the next chapters, as the brain evolved to learn all too well from the negative experiences, and it stores them in long-lasting neural structures. Nor does being with your mind by itself grow gratitude, enthusiasm, honesty, creativity, or many other inner strengths. These mental qualities are based on an underlying neural structure that don't structures that don't spring into being on their own. Further, to be with your mind fully, you've got to work with it to grow inner strengths such as calm and insight that enable you to feel all your feelings and face your inner shadows, even when it's hard. Otherwise, opening to your experience can feel like an op- opening a trap door to hell. Boy, that was graphic. And I'm sure a lot of you out there um, can really get a visual for that. Like, wait a minute, you don't want to pry open my mind. Are you sure you want to do this? Okay, brace yourself. So the mindfulness piece, like I don't, you know, I want to say it's the foundation, but that just sounds so like, I don't know, it sounds like bricks and like rigid. So I don't even think I mean that. Mindfulness is more like a trampoline because it kind of springboards us into, um, you know, being in a better place to actively work at a higher level of well-being or our most optimal well-being, our best, best, best selves where we have such a high level of life satisfaction. So mindfulness is the springboard for that. So as Rick says, whether you're letting be, letting go, or letting in, be mindful, which simply means staying present moment by moment. Mindfulness itself only witnesses, but alongside that witnessing could be active, goal-directed efforts to nudge your mind one way or the other. So as we, you know, uh, get into our, our discussion on how to you know, learn to let ourselves feel good um, and then embrace that. So it brings on more. We're going to talk about actually the, the, the neurons piece. We all know how much I love neurons. And there are, are sadly some people uh, who don't even remember what it's like to feel good because they're so stuck in the habit. Remember, habit is just a word for unconscious, you know, unconscious behavior, which can become conscious. But we, we walk around on autopilot lots of times. And of course, becoming a Minecrafter is learning to do the opposite of that, learning to learning to live deliberately. We're walking around making choices or decisions all day long. And we can either make these consciously, you know, I am choosing to make this change in my life or, you know, whatever other choices we're making, or we can make these choices and decisions passively, which basically stems out of avoiding behavior, right? Which, you know, it's the old ostrich sticking its head in the ground and just letting it all happen. We can do that and choices will be made for us then because that's how the universe works. And think about that. I mean, which is more pleasant? Would you rather be in the driver's seat creating, creating the life you want to live or, or would you want to do the ostrich thing and let your life be mapped out for you? That's really what it comes down here, down to here, living, living deliberately. So it's important to realize that the brain responds to our 
external experiences. It absolutely does. And we've talked about neurons that wire together, fire together, you know, and really there's about 100, 100 billion neurons in the average adult brain. And they're just, you know, ready for activity. And when they, you know, start to hang out together, they get stronger for whatever it is that their job is. And a lot of people, when I say the word memory, a lot of people think you can just, you know, carve someone's, you know, skull open with kindness and anesthesia and pull out a memory. Like you could just hold it. No, that doesn't even exist. That's not a thing. It's neurons. It's a group of neurons that have, quote unquote, learned to, to uh, fire together. That, that's what a memory is. So that's not different from what we're talking about. And shifting, because we don't, habits aren't broken or made, they just shift. So shifting a negative Nelly habit into a positivity habit. You know, in order to you know, make room for growth, the brain also uh, kind of gets rid of what we don't use. So that's important. Okay. So your example would be, you know, back in third grade, cursive writing was like a big thing. I remember Mrs. Whiting hovering over my shoulders, you know, making me stand the dots. And with my last name, Quinn, the Q was very hard to do in cursive writing. And now cursive writing isn't even a thing. So, uh, you know, we won't be too long before that part of the brain that once did that is just kind of snipped and clipped away often, you know, just like how we do, how we, uh, you know, uh, tackle the bushes in April, right? We get rid of the old stuff so that new, new stuff can grow. And actually the, the term for this or phrase for this is neural pruning. It is just like pruning the bushes. You get rid of the dead branches, the dead leaves, all that stuff in, in April so that new, new growth can happen. And the brain does the same thing, which is pretty amazing. Or in a Darwinian sense, instead of survival of the fittest, we would say survival of the busiest. The neurons that are busy and active are going to keep doing what they're doing. And the ones that are inactive get pruned away to make room for new growth. So when we think about you know, the negativity piece and trying to shift out of this habit, when we shift out of you know, the, the, the negative neuron circuitry, those neurons will eventually be pruned, you know, snipped right off, just like, just, like a, just like a bush. And we also know and discussed a little bit how plastic the brain is. And obviously we don't mean like you know, a children's you know, toy. We mean flexible. We mean that the brain wants to heal on its own. And there are some amazing stories of, of healing you know, from, from injury, you know, car accidents, or just um, a traumatic brain, brain injury, strokes, you know, where the brain, you know, compensates in different parts of the brain that don't even do whatever it is that was injured, will kind of step up to the plate to take over. And it's just amazing. There's so many stories about this. So that is called neuroplasticity. And it's also experience-dependent experience neuroplasticity, where our experiences actually shape how our brain works. And there's so many examples of this. There's the injury stuff, but there's also being bilingual or trilingual, all of that's uh, plasticity. Senses overcompensating. If somebody's non-sighted or senses kind of overcompensate, all that's, that's, all that's the brain trying to um, make things easier for itself. And sort of a fun example is, uh, because there's been so much research done on this, is that uh, New York City cab drivers or uh, London cab drivers, whoever, cab drivers are able to um, you know, master and learn a vast number of streets. And research has shown that they actually have changes in their hippocampus, which of course stores long-term memory, to be able to adapt to needing to learn all these streets. It's just very, very cool. So Rick Hansen says, so moving from the cab to the cushion, mindfulness meditators have increased gray matter, which means a thicker cortex in three key regions, prefrontal areas behind the forehead that control attention, 
the insula, which we use for tuning into ourselves and others, and the hippocampus. Your experiences don't just grow new synapses, remarkable as that is by itself, but also somehow reach down into your genes, into little strips of atoms in the twisted molecules of DNA inside the nuclei of neurons, and change how they operate. For instance, if you routinely practice relaxation, this will increase the activity of genes that calm down stress reactions, making you more resilient. So what it comes down to is choice. When we're talking about paying attention, you know, attention and intention pretty sum up life as we know it to be anyway, right? So only what we attenuate to, which is just kind of like a sexy 14-karat way to say attention, what we attenuate to is all we're going to experience and all that's going to land in our hippocampus in long-term memory for us to enjoy in some way later, only what we pay attention to. So think about it all day. We're making choices. So it comes down to living, you know, choosing deliberately or letting the choices be made for us, what we pay attention to. Um, yeah, that's it. And, you know, I also think it's fun to provide a little content, a little psychology fun fact, uh, slightly off topic, but not really, because he was making choices about what he did with his, with his attention, that William James um, was a really good person. And we think of the timing of him way back in the late 1800s. Uh, William James is a Harvard, Harvard guy. And back then, um, a female student, Mary Calkins, wanted to uh, be involved in his graduate seminar. And <clears throat> Harvard's president at, uh, at that time said, said no, simply because she was a woman. And of course, at that time, women weren't even allowed to vote. Um, so what's incredibly cool about William James, especially back then, you know, if he did it that now, we'd be expect. well, it wouldn't happen now, of course, but these choices wouldn't have the same kind of strength, obviously, in 2020, even though they wouldn't be happening. So when, um, so when she voiced that she wanted to be in his seminar, William James let her in, which is amazing, again, for 1890. And when he did so, every single male student dropped out. Imagine that. So William James continued to tutor her all by herself. She finished all of Harvard's requirements for the doctorate, and she outscored every single male student on the uh, qualifying exams, which is pretty amazing. Harvard actually denied her a Harvard degree, despite outscoring all the male students and finishing her requirements, and offered uh, you know, the, the sister school, Radcliffe, a degree. Well, basically, Mary Calkins did, you know, kind of flipped on the bird in her own polite late 1800s kind of way and said, no, thank you. And nevertheless, she did go on to be um, a pretty stellar teacher of memory. And she was the APAs or the American Psychiatric Association's first female president in 1905. But nevertheless, Harvard denied her that degree. Can you imagine? So more of a focus on William James. You can now go on with your day knowing more about the founder of psychology and what a good person he was. And that took chutzpah, you know. That really took chutzpah back in the late 1800s. So some little psychology fun facts for you today. Remember also, as we discussed earlier, is that the brain, you know, we're trying to shift out of a negative place to a positive place. Realize that that's, we're kind of walking uphill a little bit because we are, we are hardwired for, you know, uh, very primal reasons towards negativity. So it takes extra effort. Negative, to think negatively is easier. It's the path of least resistance versus shifting out of that into the positive is going to take more effort. It's kind of like rolling a snowball uphill at first. It gets easier as anything we practice does, right? Or rehearse anything, it all gets easier. However, in the beginning, it's going to be a little tougher because the brain, you know, we're kind of locked into this primal mode until we shift out of it. 
of way back when we were being, you know, chased around by, you know, raptors and diving into caves where it was safe and all that, that we, we were wired this way out of survival to pay more attention to the threats and more attention to the negative in order, in order to survive. And um, because of that, in 2020, we have, you know, a built-in sort of negativity bias that we need to work at to shift out of. So we're going to actually get to an actual or practical sort of mindfulness exercise for you to learn and learn to take in the good and actually work at rewiring um, this ability to take in the good, sit with it and attract more for yourself. And though to start off, I'm going to say some just some easy things that I do before we get to the larger exercise. And John Kabat-Zinn is big on this one, of course, guru of mindfulness. You know, just waking up in the morning, he says, instead of just darting out of bed, oh, no, I'm late to work. Oh, no, I hit the snooze button three times. If you're late, taking one more minute, 60 seconds, isn't going to change that all that much. And he says, just just kind of lay there or better lay there or better yet sit up because mindfulness is about being in an awakened state, not being in a sleep state. And just take in, you know, big, deep breath, this big, deep breath. I'm alive. Take in some detail. You know, for right, for right now, <clears throat> I've been doing this every day, every single day. Again, not a word I use often. <clears throat> Excuse me. The birds, the birds are having this fabulous symphony, you know, in July that I can hear out, hear out the window. And even though I know not much about the species of birds, I can definitely, I can definitely sort out the chickadees. They're not too hard. Chickadee, dee, 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 right? Uh, but the other birds, and just, I've grown to actually notice the differences and how they're singing. And it's an absolute orchestra. And 60 seconds of the bird symphony is such a fantastic way to start out my day. It's just, it's fantastic. So when the waking up part is a good way to go. And also, um, when we're just about to doze off at night, our brain is really receptive at that point. So it's a really good idea when you're dozing off to sleep to just think of something happy, something good that happened. Even if it wasn't that particular day, that doesn't really make a difference. If it is good, and if it is, and it's from last week or last month or whatever, just think of how, and wrap yourself around it. Actually feel how good it felt. Maybe somebody said something nice to you it was genuine. Maybe um, you had a fantastic ice cream experience, something. And just think of that. And speaking of food, actually, mealtime is a really easy time to feel grateful. You know, even if you were fortunate enough to go out to eat and, you know, they, they brought you, your steak wasn't done quite right. You might have loved the dessert, might have loved the how they, what they did with the potatoes or whatever. Just kind of hone in on being thankful, being thankful also for the company, having food at all. You know, because many people don't have, as we know, right, starving across, you know, the United States and world, sit with that, sit with this good, this good feeling. And I think the summer is such an easy time for that. The, the fruits that are in season, the, veg- the veggies that are in season, it's a big, you know, ice cream, strawberry shortcake kind of season. And take it in, the simple pleasures, and wrap around how good it feels. Close your eyes, even, because that accentuates um, the sense of taste, right? And we kind of shut down another sense. Close your eyes and taste that strawberry shortcake. Another thing Rick Hansen talks about is is being or learning, learning to be for yourself. And I tell you, interestingly, you know, 55, I'm still working on this. I'm aware of this stuff, right? And 
I'm, I, I like to say I'm very authentic and authentically confident, very genuinely confident. And still, um, I still have times when I have a hard time sticking up for myself. And I, I'm sure that, you know, kind of stem from my rather turbulent childhood. And, and, that, and that, there's no blame because then there's no growth, right? I'm owning that. So I'm working, I continue to work at that every day. And you, you have to kind of be in that place to be able to, you know, to be your own protector. And we talked about the self-compassion thing a few episodes ago and befriending yourself in a way you would befriend somebody else. You know, often it's so much easier and certainly to stick up for my children. That's just, it's just automatic or my husband and my, my good friends. It's, that is so much easier. And to, to be that stander upper and protector of yourself is really important to kind of value yourself and get yourself into that place where it's okay and necessary to stand up for yourself. And as my very dear friend who happens to be a priest, Father Mike said, um, you got to say how you feel, got to say how you feel. He said, just say it with honesty and kindness. You know, it's not like it's a free pass to go lash at somebody. That's not worth saying. Say how you feel. The truth can hurt. Just say it with honesty and kindness. You know, kind of picture it like you're talking to yourself. That usually works. So Rick Hansen says to take in the good, you have to want to help yourself. Being for yourself, not against others, but on your own side, is a foundation of all practices of health, well-being, and effectiveness. Without this stance, you wouldn't be motivated to act on your own behalf. Unfortunately, for, free, for reasons such as being criticized a lot as a child, many people are a much better friend to others than they are to themselves. The more that others didn't stick up for you in the past, the more important it is for you to stick up for yourself today. So Rick Hansen has come up with this activity, which is fantastic. You know, I've been doing it myself, actually. It's just a really good mindfulness activity that then, you know, again, springboards out of that into action. And it has an acronym or is an acronym. It's called HEAL. Have, enrich, absorb, and finally link. And it's based on this neuroplasticity, experience-dependent plasticity that we've been talking about. So when it talks about the have part, that's the first part. Notice, he says, notice any quality of being from yourself already present in the foreground or background of awareness. Perhaps you can sense or feel a determination to take care of your own needs or good wishes for yourself. Or create this feeling. Bring, a, bring to mind a time when you were strong on your own behalf, when you advocated or were kind to yourself. If it's hard to get on your own side, start by remembering the experience of being for someone else. Feel what it, what this is like. And then if you can bring some of that attitude towards yourself, perhaps get an image or memory of yourself as a young, vulnerable child and see if you can feel supportive towards that young person. And I've tried this in a million different ways because I practice this stuff. I love this stuff, right? And also I try to walk the walk, as they say. Talk the talk, walk the walk, all of it. I'm, I'm really doing this. I finished my gratitude journal before I even got on with all of you this morning. And because we have five children, and for me, um, you know, being, being um, you know, the best mother I could possibly be has been my one main mission in life. And, of course, our number one job as parents is to protect. All the rest of it, happy and healthy, all that, all that follows and all the, you know, the good stuff. Protection is, is first. And so this part of this exercise was very, very easy for me because it was not difficult at all to pull up times, you know, that I've had to protect and advocate for our children at various times. Um, and that's an easy one. 
I also liked how um, he uh, brought up basically the inner child work of uh, John Bradshaw way back in the 70s or I think 80s, actually, working. He talks about, you know, imaging your, or finding an image of yourself in your mind's eye of when you were when you were little, when you were young and when invulnerable. And, you know, there, there was, you know, unkindness, maltreatment, so you way to kind of picture your young self and then picture your now self, your adult self, standing in front of your young self, you know, protecting that beautiful inner child from whatever it was that happened, you know, kind of that duality of experience. That's a wonderful meditation to do, actually. And again, goes along with that inner child work of the 80s. Next, Rick says, because okay, so we have heal, have, enrich, absorb, link. So the E is enrich. And he says, open up to this feeling. Let it fill your body and mind and become more intense. Stay with it. Help it last. Make a sanctuary for it in your mind. Notice different aspects of the experience. Imagine how you would sit or stand or speak if you were on your own side. And then let your posture or facial expression shift in this direction. Be aware of how being on your own side would matter for you at home or work. Now, I will tell you, I'm a, I'm a big visual imagery person. And we actually know, research-wise, that this works like a charm. There have been a gazillion studies done on on athletes. Okay, let's say um, I can think of one that I share with my students. I do not have it in front of me. But basically, it was with a, a pro uh, tennis team. Maybe it's a college tennis team. doesn't matter. They were really, really good. Uh, women's tennis team, which is not even my sport, but it was amazing to to hear, you know, it was eight, we, eight or 12 weeks of working with these women, structured visualization, and it was with serving specifically. And the numbers were crazy with accuracy after they went through this eight or 12 weeks of visualizing, you know, serving that ball into the little square on the other side of the of the court. And they went up. I don't remember the numbers, so I don't want to misquote anybody. It was significant compared to what they were doing pre-visual imagery. It's amazing how well it works. So we bring that into the well-being area and, and envision, you know, feel these good feelings, envision these good memories, these, even if they're tweaked a little bit, it's okay. They're good memories. And, and just see where this goes because we know that this works. The next letter of the HEAL acronym is A. And Rick says, A is for absorb, sense and intend that this feeling of being on your own side is sinking into you as you sink into it. Love that. Let this good experience become part of you. Love that too. Give yourself over to it. Let being kind towards yourself, wishing yourself well, be increasingly how you treat yourself. Man, that is food for the soul right there. Food for the soul. It's a feast. Rick talks about the last letter, which is L for link. He talks about this last step is optional, but I'll, I'll give it to you in case you want to do it, okay? So he says, the L for link is about linking positive and negative material so that the positive soothes and may even replace the negative. So I'm sure most of you out there have heard of cognitive behavioral therapy, and this is obviously the basic premise is, you know, kind of in the originally kind of evaluating, self-evaluating what's working for you in your life and what isn't. And since thoughts come before feelings, we're really talking about what, what type of thinking is working for you and what isn't. And shifting away from what's not working into something that's, you know, a better, more positive place that will work better for you. And it's interesting because we've talked, you know, we've discussed so many different authors and, and leaders in, you know, in the well-being field, mindfulness and 
well-being and all this other stuff. And they're, they're saying the same thing. And so Rick brings us back to, uses the word habit and says, making this a habit, practice, 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 practice. Aristotle said this, right? Again, very, very paraphrased because I am an Aristotle fan. Aristotle said, you know, if we practice the virtues, if we practice, let's say, honesty or humility, when we practice these things, we get better at them. It's not like somebody got, you know, won the honesty lottery ticket and they're more honest than you are. They won the humility ticket and they're more humble than you are. So it doesn't work that way. Same is true for happiness. Somebody didn't just, you know, wasn't the lucky duck that just, you know, pulled the ticket out of a hat and they're happy and you're not. He talks about making this a habit because this wonderful three pound organ that the brain is gets stronger like a muscle every single time we exercise it. And as we've mentioned with other habits, you know, somebody's a little bit of a couch potato and now they're going to make that move to start walking and then eventually running, which is awesome. We all know, myself included, because I'm a runner, and actually right now I'm starting over because we've had a series of heat waves and rain, and that's all fine, totally fine. And it, it can take a lot to start over, especially over and over again, to get off, you know, to get off that couch or out of that sedentary place, to start, you know, to get that to get that going again. And it takes very, very, very deliberate effort and some discipline to to make to make that leap into, you know, shifting out of a out of a not so healthy habit into a healthier, more positive habit. And we also know what hap- what happens is with anything, whether you're playing the violin or you're starting playing soccer or going to the gym or whatever it is you're doing, that it does get easier. And I, I can use my running example because I've, <laughs> at 55 and running since like high school and been in sports since before that, that it it's, for me, it's like when you break through the wall, you can run one mile or two, and it feels like you're breathing through a dish towel. So this can be metaphorical for whatever it is you're trying to start. It doesn't have to be running. And breathing like a dish through a dish towel, and it's like, you know, why am I doing this? Then a couple of weeks go by, even just running a mile. Then it's two, still breathing through a dish towel. And why am I doing this? Then all of a sudden it's like, hallelujah, 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 right? And all of a sudden we break through the wall, and then we can run, you know, it's, I don't say any amount of miles, but quite a quite a decent amount of mileage and not even feel it. It's like, you, you know, I stop when I'm just kind of bored, done with it. My music ran out. Actually, I don't usually run with too much music, but kind of just when I just kind of feel done or I've got to move on with my day and do something else, but it's not because I can't breathe anymore. And that's a fabulous feeling of breaking through the wall. So whatever, take that breaking through the wall idea into your life, whatever that is, and know that once you do break through, it just all gets easier. It, it gets easier to maintain. It still takes effort, but not a fraction of the amount it took, you know, to get started with it. So the same is true with this HEAL acronym of have, enrich, absorb, and link um, to make positivity and happiness, hardwired for happiness, a habit. And on that positive note, I will let you know we will continue this fantastic conversation next week with some more uh, content and more tips and new strategies for becoming hardwired for happiness. This is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm